Welcome to the Stories Are Soul Food podcast, presented by Cannonball Books, the kids' fiction imprint of Cannon Press. Met a ghost of a king on the road when I first fell. Fire burning to my knees, to my knees I fell. Met a ghost of a king on the road. Yeah. No, uh, Tony, welcome to SAS. We're Everybody. episode one something. Did you find out? We don't keep track. Right. Yep. So episode uh, over a hundred. Yeah, close to it. Might be one hundred twenty, but I, I did not check. Okay. Um, uh, last week they didn't do a great job. <laughs> uh, we we were not amused, and that ultimately is what we're about here. The reason why we have a studio audience is because Brian and I are looking to be more amused. So we frequently do this podcast in a small dark room with no one else. And that gets boring. Yeah. So, so here we are, with these people. Now, also the way we do this, if you're, if you're not familiar with the podcast, is I show up and I have no idea what we're going to talk about. And then Brian has an idea of what we're going to talk about. And so that's where we're going to go right now is, Brian, what are we talking about today? <laughs> well, we're actually going to start off with uh, some of you all extremely brave souls. We're going to start off with a little, a little fun starter of uh, some of you brave souls have sent in novel ideas. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Nate, Nate didn't know we were doing this, but now he can't back out, and that's often how this podcast works. <laughs> I can. I oh, yeah. mean, he chooses not to, as a gentleman and a scholar. <laughs> we, could do, we could do it. Uh, I have the distinct impression this is going to be kind of like saying, hey, let's have a podcast about stories and we're gonna sit here and just suck on some lemons. <laughs> just, uh, but but stuck is... a lemon wedge in here and just you guys can watch us just <laughs> Well, here's the deal though. When writing a story, you have to develop the ability to take criticism. <laughs> we'll practice. Uh, also, you should know that by submitting these ideas, you have waived all right to their uh, intellectual property, you know, the, the property. <laughs> and if they're good, we'll just keep them. So it's very low likelihood of us keeping any, but just so you know, you sent them in. First lesson of writing, copyright your stuff. I don't see any names The Writers Guild currently on strike has told me never leave materials behind. And if I... Is that what they said? Yeah. And if I had... Because <laughs> your, your boss is If I had steal. not been robbed of ideas in LA, I, if I said that, I would be lying to you. I have had my own movie ideas pitched back to me in fact, by people. So they so, would be like, here's a cool idea we have for a film. And like it's your I am, idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm in a studio that is, you know, not to be named. I pitch them, I pitch them a concept. They say, man, that's cool. I just don't see us doing something like that right now. It doesn't really fit with our slate. I'm back six to nine months later and I've, somebody's left, an executive's left, a new executive's there. And I'm there catching up on what their slate is. And he says, so we have this one really cool idea we've developed internally and then pitches me my movie. Oh. And you're like, oh, <laughs> that is a fantastic idea. <laughs> so just know you guys might get that treatment tonight. The studio audience, if you sent something in, it's really good. You might hear me pitching it on a SAS uh, episode number more yeah. than 200. So I had a dream and. Yeah, I had this I've been, <laughs> thing I've really been working on lately. <laughs> This idea about a goldfish. On the other hand, say you're... <laughs> That's really good at taxes. <laughs> say your idea is not that good and we make fun of it. It's because, well... Because you're dumb. 
Because <laughs> we like you all and want you to succeed with better ideas next time. We want you to learn that you're dumb <laughs> and get less dumb because we like you. I'm not going to read them all. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That's what it is. Um, but we have time for a few. So, so ready? Story idea. Okay, pitch. This is the pitch session. Pitch session. There's a guy who's able to see how much money people have evaded from taxes, fraud, etc. He becomes a civil servant to go and find the proof that they've done these bad things to bring justice to the tax system and fix the law. Pass. <laughs> You've heard of Batman. I don't know. I think, I think saying that out loud is enough. I don't think we need to do anything else. Okay. <laughs> You've heard of Batman. Have you heard of tax man? <laughs> In a world <laughs> where people evade taxes, <laughs> one man <laughs> can see your bank account. Okay. Uh, okay, right. next. Well, <laughs> oh. somebody want to raise their hand about that one? Wait. <laughs> We should, we should do this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's go, sir. Oh, two people raising their hands? They're already stealing their own credit They're already each like, other. There's already theft going on. We have either purple robbing blue or blue robbing purple. It's, let's see, don't leave material behind. Uh, if you You have guys an can idea, take that one. I allow you to take that one. <laughs> yeah, you it. guys can, can scrap it out later. <clears throat> Fight okay. over tax man. <laughs> Libertarian fixer man. <laughs> okay. Hey, this now, let, let's just pause and say, it's not dumber than what Hollywood's already making. Let's be clear. Right. It's not dumb. It's, I don't think it's yours. I think it's his. I'm, gonna just, I'm just adjudicating. Is it yours? No. Okay. There. He okay. wins. Okay. And, but that's not, you know... It's not really a compliment, but just so you know where you are on the food chain. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Story idea. A girl grew up lost in her imagination and has to eventually make the decision to come back to this world. Mm -hmm. This would happen through her meeting someone who would help her see God's beauty and magic in her own world. I think this one is submitted by a girl instead of no, by a guy. No, no way. Just my editor senses tingling. <laughs> uh, now we really hope a guy doesn't raise his hand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this um, is the time to just fall on your sword and be quiet if it was. Um, so explain to me how it's different than Anne of Green Gables. Girl grew up lost in her imagination, make the decision to come back to this world. She meets someone who'd help Maybe her see God's beauty and magic. It could be an aunt she's living with, perhaps. Yeah, I think there are a billion books like that. It all depends on the execution, right? And then you could still never get better than Anne of Green Gables. Could you? I, I, maybe you could. What's Nate's the little, uh, why am I blanking on his name? That little ginger pop star. Uh, Ed Sheeran. Yeah, Sheeran. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sheeran was being sued for stealing somebody's song. And he basically said his, his case was all songs are dumb. And all songs are so similar that we're stealing from each other all the time. And there's no way that originality is possible in my medium. Which is the pop song. And so then he played for the jury, I believe, a mashup of pop songs. 
where it was just transitioning from one to the next and all being very, very similar. So don't give up hope just because you have no originality. Many such cases. Many, many, many <laughs> such cases. So maybe fame and fortune awaits for whoever wants to tell this tale of this girl and her imagination. Ooh, this one's about an author. Those are your Perfect. favorite. Those are your favorite. A small, respectable little town realizes they're sitting on a pile of hidden treasure, a secret fortune, when a person comes to town in disguise, the author who turns the community and one young man's life in particular on its head. A true story of Louis L'Amour. <laughs> um, I don't get it. I don't get it either. That one's really confusing. I wish I hadn't read it. <clears throat> <laughs> um, not for your sake. <laughs> but Brian's too I... nice. Just so you know, he's an editor, which means he's not nice, but he cares about people, which means that he is you nice. He doesn't necessarily care about people hearing the truth mm. all the time. Mm. Or we want the best for you. And so we want your work to be the best that it could be. But you notice how first he was thinking about himself. He was sad he read it. And then he tried to make it about you guys. This is, this is Brian that. being a sweetheart, but he's actually an editor to the bone, which means he hated everything about it. But it was just a bad pitch. It didn't have anything interesting. Like you got to focus on what it's about. Is it about the young man, about the author? Is it about the secret treasure? Is it about discovering it? You know, you is just, it about Louis L'Amour? Is it about Louis L'Amour, right? So with those things, you got to decide what it is. Discern the heart. And the Louis L'Amour reference is because he bought up tons of buildings in his old hometown and made a massive uh, used bookstore. Like the downtown just became this tiny town. Louis L'Amour land. Yeah. He came yeah. back to this little town that was respectable and gave it treasure. <laughs> the treasure so of many paperbacks works. yeah okay i think we've got i think we've got maybe time for one more on the verge of being everything the hated son of a celebrated government official runs away from home but when he discovers what his father has actually been plotting he must learn how to face his demons and forgive those he hates most before everything his family has built up is destroyed and canada comes to ruin <laughs> <laughs> This is sort of Trudeau's kid. <laughs> Trudeau's illegitimate son. <laughs> what do you want to say about it? <laughs> um, it, it there's if, I pay, if I picked up a book and I started to read that on the back cover, I would not finish reading that. The problem is you need to be more specific and you're writing in generalities, the hated son of a government official, as opposed to, I don't know, Trudeau's. Trudeau's bastard child. <laughs> uh, and then what his father's been plotting, we, if you just included details. And then I was really excited when I saw demons in it, which is why I chose this one, and then I realized they were cliche demons. <laughs> Face his demons, as opposed to realistic demons, which would be kind of interesting. One mm. more or on to the meat of our episode? Let's do one more. Just, just make it a good one. It would be nice to say something positive. Um, Don't you think? <clears throat> Nah, just make it any. They're all really generic. I don't know how. Mm. Okay, this one at least has a societal structure. It could be Brandon Sanderson. Everyone is, everyone is separated by birth order. I realize this means everyone in society is separated by birth order, oldest, middle, and youngest. They each have jobs and duties corresponding with their order of birth. A war breaks out between the groups in a fight for power. Power. For power. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Maybe we need to refresh what the ingredients of a pitch are. 
Or of a story. <laughs> or of a story. <laughs> the ingredients of a story. Yeah, so that's a setting, I guess. A society in like which... A what, so a what-if story is if you just start with a what-if. And so what if everyone was separated by birth order? Okay, there we are. There's the beginning of something. Mm -hmm. What if there was a society like that? How would that play out? Uh, how many of you have seen the show Silo on Apple or know of it? The book Wool. Get it, get it, hands higher if you. Okay, good. So it's not super redundant for me. It's not like it's a fantastic show. Um, it does just lags in the middle of the first season, but it is interesting. And so it's what if there is a society in an underground silo that doesn't know why they're there, but is too scared to go out. And the only rule is if anyone says they want to go out, then they have to go out. And they all watch them on a camera as they get pushed out the door and die. And so it just reinforces this stay inside. It's like, okay, there's a what if. Now, what are all the social consequences of something like that? So the reason why, if we're going to jump over to fantasy, the reason why Tolkien and Lewis were so good at what they wrote is because they understood human motivation as individuals and also as a society. So they knew what moved nations. They knew what moved peoples to certain action. And they knew how if you piled a bunch of people into a room, you know, into a, a village, into a nation, in different situations, you, they knew how they, it would shake out. They knew how it would work. And that's where you, you find all this friction, political friction, and you see all these different dynamics in the Lord of the Rings with the different peoples shut, you know, you have the hobbits and the elves and the dwarves and the different kinds of dwarves and the riders of Rohan, but they were allies of Gondor, but now they're not. And you have all this different kind of friction. That's all the natural friction that would arise from peoples, you know, different suspicions and so on. And it helps drive the narrative that there's always tension. There's always these frictions. So if you decide to write a what if novel or film or show, and you get a good what if, you now need to really be a student of humans, of humanity. What would that look like? Can you actually like pursue that thought experiment and see where all the breakdowns would happen? What does power look like? And what are the different jobs? And how would people view themselves and behave? And how are, how's the society built? How's the city arranged? Yeah, and so, understanding everything from yeah. city planning to political campaigns and manipulation before you can even get to the, the actual plot. Because the plot can't be the what if. The plot is always that person inside a situation in which a what if has happened. So the girl who is a third born is your protagonist. Or, you know, is this a guy or a girl who had this idea? Get the hand. I can't see you in the darkness. Girl. Girl. Okay. I th which is what I would have guessed uh, because it's relational. Like it's a, this relational thing of like, hey, we're all sorted a certain way. And there's friction as opposed to a guy who would be more, you know, a little more plot based, usually um, mechanistic, less relational in concept. The what if is interesting, but you would just need to know a ton about humanity and societies and everything like that before you even started mapping it out. Map the society, map the world, and then find a plot inside of it. Right. So um, the, that in... Uh in silo, well, I'm assuming, I don't know, in the book, it broke down the society really interestingly between the upper floors yep. and the engineers the down and the deepers bottom. and 
the mid-levels. And, and how far it was to actually get up and down the silo. And they're mixed in a murder mystery or a murders yep. into it. And that became very fascinating. But the what if is the setting. What if there's a silo? And that is, incidentally, if you did do something like this, where you are in a society where everybody's sorted by birth order and there's a murder. It's like, okay, that's you have this big what if and then now you have a Dorothy Sayers or you have an Agatha Christie inside a bizarre society. And that kind of a thing, it can be a pretty simple plot inside of a world like that, but it only works if you really, really understand people. Right, and there's a, a bunch of books like that too. You know, think The Prince and the Pauper is that, but you've got society divided into two classes instead of three. And then you have the pauper switching spots and becoming the prince for a while. So, you know, there's a lot of relational dynamics that could work well with that story idea yeah. past the what if. You'd probably need one extra thing of like, it's like a China situation where there's like a three kid policy or something like that, you know, where it is always yeah. oldest, middle, youngest. Yeah. You kind of like simplify it so you don't have to have weird curveballs about the sixth of seven always has to <laughs> yep. fill in the blank. Yep. Anyway, that, that was more interesting. Good job. Alrighty. Well, um, here's the part where we transition to what we normally talk about in our podcast. Okay. Which is, which is my question about, which is uh, whatever we feel like. And sometimes we just push the button and talk about things off the record. Should we do that? Too? <laughs> Let's not do that. <laughs> I try to leave that at the work, at the workplace. Okay. Um, <laughs> so what are we, what are we talking about, Brian? So, so what we are is, uh, reading the story wrong that you're in. So we've actually spent a fair amount of time talking about um, David and how he, and I know you're working on a bunch of David stuff. Uh, as, as David got prophecies and maintained, showed remarkable faithfulness as he waited to become the king of Israel, uh, I, I was, it, con it contrasted with um, Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom after the split, who was also... Um, given divine word that he would be the agent of splitting the kingdoms and would become the king of Israel. And I'd never noticed sort of that, I'd never noticed that before, that Jeroboam and Ahijah, I think is the name of the prophet, have a similar relationship with prophecies coming that say David and Samuel do, an anointing. And, uh, and Jeroboam clearly, or seemed to have believed it because Solomon immediately tried to have him killed I mean, so backstory, Jeroboam was one of Solomon's um, overseers, one of the guys in charge of the slave labor and the intense building that Solomon did. So as soon as he gets anointed, he runs off to Egypt because he's afraid he'd be killed and then ends up coming back after Solomon has passed away and becoming part of the, uh, the, the, dele the delegation that goes to Rehoboam and says, hey, please cut down some of these taxes. Jeroboam would have known it because he would have collected all those and kept track of that. But anyways, I guess, I guess the thought is, how, what do you see in David that allowed him to wait for so long in a desert and refuse to kill Saul? And can we contrast that a little bit? Or, or what are some of the lessons where you see, wow, David read the story right this way, you know, and not killing Saul versus Jeroboam? has multiple instances where he then began to lead the kingdom of Israel astray. But I've talked for a long time now, so. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I think that, that one especially is, it's more just Jeroboam did a bad job. Okay. Once he was king, he was a bad man. And so once he was, once he was king, he was making bad decisions and false mm. gods and all sorts of things were going on. What kept David is really interesting. And I, I think that 
this is this is a little bit of projection, but I do I do think David was a little bit prophet, priest, and king, and actually was hmm. was more. And I think that we we see in David's Psalms and other things that I, I believe that he was he was a prophet. Like you read these messianic psalms, you right, read these, right. uh, you, you read these pictures of the crucifixion and so on, and they're pretty vivid, they're pretty specific, and I think that it wouldn't surprise me at all. In fact, it would surprise me if he didn't have visions, if he was not actually a, a dreamer of dreams, a seer of some kind. Mm. So the fact that he's writing as specifically as he is uh, about things under inspiration, he's written a ton of scripture. And there's all these psalms and so much insight into what he's doing um, and what's happening and what's happening in the future. I, th I think that he really is prophetic. We also see his behavior with the showbread and his comfort with his relationship with uh, Yahweh. And so one of the things that's really interesting, if you read Samuel closely and you read Judges and you go through Kings, you read all these Old Testament stories and, and pay attention whenever you see a character who's directly communicating with God, because it actually is unusual. It's not, it's not just a normal thing. Now, post Christ, we're all, we're used to having a mediator and we're used to a prayer life and the expectation that we should be praying and talking to God and communicating to God and, and having discourse with God. We also, because we're cessationists, understand that we're not expecting him to speak back to us in English. Like we're not expecting, you know, modern English communication from the creator God. But uh, you go look at Saul, for example, and the way Saul will talk to Samuel and be like, intercede with me, sacrifice with me, speak to God for me. Like reach, reach out to Yahweh for me. He's, he needs the priest, he needs the judge, he needs the, the prophet to step in the middle and David doesn't. David just communicates directly with Yahweh. And it's that's quite yeah. striking, which is the behavior of a priest. It's like he's he receives communication from God, which is the behavior of a prophet. He directly communicates with God and intercedes with God uh, on his own behalf and on yeah. the behalf of others, which is the behavior of a priest. And we know he's king. Uh, we, we see that, and this is a very superficial skim over it, but that's one of the biggest differences. And so what hmm. kept David from uh, doing what Jeroboam did is like, well, Jeroboam actually is very, very Saul-like in, yeah. in many ways, where David is not. Yeah. Like David has this, this weird relationship, this weird closeness of communication with God and a confidence in instruction and in what he's seeing and has a relationship with Samuel that's a close one. Yeah, but he's wonder, not relying just on Samuel all the time. Like Samuel kind of kicks it off, you know, anoints him. But David was a piece of work. I wonder, he was a real piece of I work. I mean, when you start looking at that, you, I wonder, as you're phrasing it that way, if David's focus on God's law is something that kind of encapsulates all that. You know, that he wrote so many songs just yeah. about how great God's law is. And then, of course, Jeroboam's first move is he sees when they split into two kingdoms, he is immediately afraid all these people are going to go down to Jerusalem obeying God's law to worship yeah. at Jerusalem. And so I got to put up these two new, not only have I had a new political center at Shechem, but I now have to have calf idols 
at Dan. Uh, yeah, and, I need altars. North and the south, right? And, and of the northern kingdom. And so I, I think that may be right there, that, that the focus on God's law is missing and is not in Jeroboam's heart. But it is interesting to me, it does, the question I was wondering is what would it look like if Jeroboam had obeyed? But maybe he was never in that situation. Maybe he was just happily becoming an agent of. He was anointed. His own. He's anointed. So it's like, yeah, I'm king. And now I get, I get power and I need to hang on to, on to power. The other thing you just said, and this is, uh, as far as reading the story right and reading your own stories right, trying to read any story correctly, and it's, yeah. especially Bible <laughs> stories. So yeah. if you think David, and you, to your point, writing these celebrations of God's law, how would he know God's law? Put yourself in the Bronze Age. Put yourself back there where this is a kingdom that doesn't even have metal. They're trying to get, it's actually, they're like Stone Age in the Bronze Age. The rest of the world is advanced and they're stuck having to get their metal from the Philistines. They're, they're going over there for all the metallurgy and they're, they're doing all, the, the smiths are all over there. They have to throw rocks. They've got sticks and rocks. And you're then thinking like, okay, so he would know God's law. How? Where is it? Can he read it? Does he know how to read? Does he know how to write? Eventually he does, but it, like they didn't have kindergarten. Yeah, as a shepherd kid. Yeah, he's, you know, you don't, he doesn't seem like he's he would a, have he's been a shepherd. Taught, right? He's young, he's out working in the fields. Paper was incredibly expensive and primarily Egyptian. How are you writing and reading? How are you doing this? And then this is a guy who starts there and then becomes the writer of so much. To mm -hmm. go from a shepherd boy in a Stone Age culture to writing really quite soaring poetry, some of which is very long and intricate and and would have been written. Technical. Really yeah, technical and, and, and could have been sung. Would have been literally scratched on a rock with another rock or, or scratched on pot pottery or in wet clay. You're, you know, you're putting it in wet clay, then firing it or just letting it dry in the sun. And then it's breaking and you, you're trying to do all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, David's encounter with the law of God was most likely when he went to Gibeah, when, when Saul called him. He would have known some general things. Uh, but when he actually got taken away to the king's court where there would have been scribes, there would have been, you know, Levites around and it would have been a lot you know, like a big awakening for him, like going off to this, this city experience. Yeah. Now, wouldn't it, would it have to have been oral or do you think at that point it would have been, I guess there's, there's winter months when they're not fighting. <laughs> they, they are, are the things, so there are, um, there are these like stone blocks that they found that are covered in carvings, you know, commemorating a, a victory or referring to the house of David or, and it's, it's, you know, they were, they were doing that kind of stuff, but it was not a text. You weren't, you weren't able to just communicate in writing quickly. It was an oral culture overwhelmingly, but inside that oral culture, there were people, there were scribes, there were people yeah. writing and documenting and doing all that kind of thing. And we look, we read the old Testament. We're very confused as to why this group of people could forget stuff so quickly. Like, how can you forget this already again? You know, just all really already right. forgotten. And Josiah rediscovers the law of God and is like, Whoa, and nobody else knew and he brought it out and read it to people like, hey, look what we found. And look how um, bad we're doing, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, how do, how do they forget? 
It's like, well, you all in our audience aren't old enough really to have existed consciously pre-smartphone. You know, like just in terms of like, you've you've been reliant on smartphone technology and, and phone technology most of your conscious lives. Where Brian and I are old enough to have remembered vast stacks of phone numbers. <laughs> yep. Where you're, you're going to retain just at the top of your head, like long digit sequences. You know, like this is maps of whole cities. I knew my way around Seattle and you didn't put it in a phone. You know, you just, you had to like retain all these pieces of information without uh, any kind of artificial aid, the speed with which I forgot those things is amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. As soon as I knew like, oh, I have that written down in my fake brain, I can just, I can push a button and tell my phone to do something. All of this stuff started decaying and there's weird little scraps there. As soon as it was like gone, immediately gone, it started to fall away from just me. So if you imagine being in a, a place where, how often do you hear the law? You know, you show right. up to one, one, one big like day of atonement. Yeah. You've got, you know, you hear some things that pass over. There are these different moments and then you're going away and you're going away and you're going away and, and uh, you don't know how to read, you haven't seen it. Th- this is ultimately pre-Reformation, how all of Europe was controlled is because the mass was in Latin and nobody could read scripture. Nobody could check the work of anybody up front. Like, and this is why people died over. Yeah, Tyndale became public enemy number one in, yeah. in a number of places just because he threatened that power structure. So the, the power structure was trying to keep the written word out of the hands of the populace so they couldn't read the Bible because that's the most dangerous book you could possibly read. So they're trying to kill people. They were killing people over that. Now flashback and think about a society where that is just by technological necessity already the case. No one can possibly have the law in their house. Yeah. You can't have the law of God in your house. The Pentateuch is just, it's not there. Uh, it's, it makes me think that David, I think, you know, the first thing we hear about him composing would be those songs for Saul, right? Yep. And that's got to be the way that he would have started memorizing all yep. those things, right? Yeah. And then they found all the dots on the manuscripts for how to sing the Psalms that David wrote, you know, basic tone control, actually pretty complicated tone control. And that, I don't know, the way you describe that. I don't that, necessarily believe them. Yeah, that's true. But, but uh, maybe. I don't know, you listen to them and you're like, I can see that sounding. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. But um, any, anyway, it's, I, I do think this is kind of a long way around to say Jeroboam was just a guy who grabbed power, was anointed and, and grabbed power. David was something else entirely. Yeah. He was this uh, foreshadowing of the Messiah and a, a, a foreshadowing of the Davidic messianic promise of prophet, priest, king, yeah. and everything that was coming. I think his relationship with God was intensely close. Yeah, that's like really intensely too. close, like Moses level close. Because it wasn't it wasn't just that uh, Jeroboam had someone anoint him and set him off. You know, Ahijah's there several times. And then when he does those altars, Ido shows up and says, yep. hey, some guy coming, a son of David, actually, is going to break this altar and destroy it. 
I can't remember what happened, but I think uh, Jeroboam reaches out his hand and tries to stop it and gets his hand withered and then ends up saying, please, can you unwither my hand? And then Ido, I've said that often. <laughs> let the hand back. And then, uh, and then Ido did it. And Jeroboam went right back to everything he was doing of just real quick. Yeah. Uh, kind, I mean, of, kind of like you all yeah. would do if there's something stressful in your life and then you pray and then God actually is kind to you the next day you could be complaining about something. So if, if you're stressed yeah. out about a project, an assignment, something at work, something your parents are going through and then the next day answered, done, problem solved and you're outside and it gets really cold and starts to rain. How, how quickly do you complain about something um, <laughs> and just forget and move right back to the way you were? It happens all the time. And actually, here's a, here's a side note pivot to how all these people are terrible characters. Um, how we That's all a are. That's a theme of the Soul Food Podcast. <laughs> yeah, you're all terrible. Um, <laughs> the, one of the ways in which we are terrible characters is in your life, much of it comes to you indirectly. Like your life comes to you via other humans, uh, your parents, your friends. It's all mediated by your fellow creatures. What comes to you the most directly from God? Every single day. Anybody? Life. L sure, life. It's kind of a big vague thing, but yeah, okay. <laughs> In the back. Grace, Grace comes again. To you? the Jesus God Bible. Specific. Um, what specific thing does God make? Yeah, for it's you all every by day? grace. Anybody? Thank you. The weather. What do you complain about most? What do people in general complain about most? They're all like life. <laughs> life, grace. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like it's is the this weather, is just something yes. we do. So we we complain about other people. We do complain about other people, but when your mom makes you breakfast, you probably say, thanks mom. You know, if you're not in a mood, um, which you of course should never be, but how quickly are you, are, or do you ever say thanks mom and then immediately be thanking God for your mom? It's like one degree of separation in that grace chain and we kind of lose track of God's gift. So somebody does something nice for you, you don't usually stack up your thanks. You don't thank them and then thank God behind them for having sent them. Uh, we just, we see that one degree. The weird thing is when you walk outside and the sun is bright and it's hot, it is hot. When you walk outside, you were hoping that today was beach day and it is pouring rain. When you see what God is doing directly to you and to everybody else, we are so quick to complain. And all these indirect things, we, we navigate and we fuss about some of them. But everybody feels free, constantly feels free to complain about whatever God happened to do to all of us today. Like just- <laughs> Through atmospheric pressure. Just constantly. <laughs> movement of winds. And it's a really quick and weird reflex that just like, ah, this is dumb, says somebody when it's snowing again, uh, you know, for the fourth straight day. And it's, my kids will tell you, I frequently t will tell them, it's like, well, tell that to God. Just like, go ahead, directly. 
Just and then take, they immediately start checking to see if they're hand with it. Yeah, it's like, check it, <laughs> put it on a comment card and, <laughs> and drop it off. I think you've there. been doing a terrible job with the weather. <laughs> you know, this uh, is, one thing. Not really. Now, this is, again, this is just something we tend to do. I'm very familiar with the frustration of stepping outside. And this is not according to my plan. This right. weather's not according to my plan. Like, so? <laughs> uh, whenever my... I, whenever my little boys get like that, we'll occasionally make the rule that you have to say something that you're thankful for before you say literally anything. And they're like, wait, anything? And you're like, you have to say something you're thankful for before you can say, wait, anything. And you know, and it just gets us, it can change that mood spiral from being really dis, you know, disgusted about things yeah. they shouldn't be. Into, and it's not, it's not even about the mood as much as the perspective, which right. then changes the mood spiral. Right. And it, it is really strange how we are, very terrible characters just all the time we do uh speaking of we try to keep maintain control around the dinner table which is usually very loud which is nice but we also play a game called high low buffalo where you say something the highest point of your day the lowest point of your day and the weird point of your day so these are little guys right and they i think that's very positive because we don't often look back on our day and observe, oh, this was a challenge God put in front of me, or this part of my day, we do sometimes do, this part of my day was awesome, or this part of my day was just weird. Um, and and those, those kind of frameworks for looking back even on not just the day, but on what, what's come in the year before has, I, I don't know, it's fun to watch a six-year-old start to think about, oh, you know, it was weird today. I saw my swim teacher at the pool. You know, that's the kind of thing that they... <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> she was there and it wasn't swimming lessons. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. They're Melted. Like, it's a buffalo, Melted. a buffalo moment for sure. Um, <clears throat> that, is, that, is, yeah. that is actually funny. But I, I think the, uh, in, my, in my family, the lows were always like really cherished because that meant a good story. Mm. So when, when bad things happened or funny things happened, it was like, yes, plot, a narrative. Stuff that was yeah. just positive is kind of like, eh. Right. It was, I was standing outside and this really perfect zephyr caressed my face. <laughs> and then just went away. I just got a perfect tan it's today. <laughs> it's like, it's like, okay, that was great. It's like, oh, today I had, a, I had a great what? Great coffee? Man, the barista was really on point today. The coffee was fantastic. Yeah. Those are less interesting than today I was hit by a car. Yeah. You know, it's like... <laughs> And everybody is immediately like, oh, <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> let's, let's, talk, let's talk about this. This is a more interesting story. Today, I... Uh, yeah, my son, today my toe burst open at the pool and bled everywhere. Every, you know? <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> the lifeguard carried me to the lifeguard station, which was very <laughs> embarrassing. You know, yep. <laughs> that's, what, that's what they yeah, all Yeah, so I had a, returning from a track meet, decompressing with my kids, talking to them in the back, re-entering town, see a semi pulled across the highway, blocking traffic. We're rolling up. Uh, some friends of ours are right ahead of us. We stop. We get out. And there's a woman with her leg off on the side of the highway. Oh, and wow. it's like the semi had hit an old lady on a motorcycle. And you're looking around. It's like there's no one here is going to fix it. Like there's nobody here. Suddenly it's like, oh, it's, it's story time. It's time to like make the right decisions and be a good character and like get this done. Get this. Try to get a tourniquet on. You know, it's like try to get traffic stopped and directed um and she was they did save her leg eventually but whose belt is going on her thigh like when you're when you're sitting here right before that 30 seconds prior you're thinking man that's a long track meet yeah i'm really hungry 
kind of like, eh, it's a hard day, hard day. Stood at a track meet. Oh, sh her leg's off. Okay. That's her day. Um, Shouldn't have worn gym shorts. <laughs> Shouldn't yeah, have worn like, gym shorts. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's hers. But we really, like, finding your perspective on the hardship and on the trial is really, really important. And not just finding something to complain about or finding something for your social media feed that will cause your friends to all envy you or, or click like or whatever. What's, what's actually the journey? What's actually the, the story that you're in and how do you develop? Because the bad news is uh, about this planet, none of us are gonna get out of here alive. Like no, nobody's getting out of here alive. You're all gonna die uh, at different times. Every one of you has a little clock above your head counting down right now that we can't see, but God can. Some Story idea. Yes. One man can see the clock above yep. your head. <laughs> one man who also does taxes. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but you have that counting down and you don't know how many heartbeats you have left, how many days you have left. But you know that basically everybody in this room has a different number and everybody in this room is counting down. And today, well, there's one more than tomorrow. And everything's just going. You don't know where it's going. The other thing you all know is that you are not currently uh, perfect. I think we can say that. We can say that you're not currently perfect. Not one of you would be like, hey, my character arc is done. <laughs> I don't need the journey. You've heard I'm, of the hero's journey. I'm through it. I'm through the hero's journey. I need zero suffering. I need zero hardship because I's perfected. I'm perfect. I'm there. It took however many years, 13, 14, 15. I was pretty terrible when I was four, but now that I'm 17, I'm <laughs> on point. Chef's How many kiss. years did it take? You're perfected. God's done with his work with you, which means no more story. You're ready for your Enoch moment or your Elijah moment. Here come the fiery horses. You're out. Like the, the question really is like, in your own stories, where's the suffering? Where's the hardship? How do you lean in? How do you overcome? How do you achieve? And knowing that all of that is this refinement process, every single day, every week, every year is part of the refinement process with a, with a God who has a very long attention span because the rest of us would get extremely bored of your year. If we had to watch, let's say even an hour a day of your life, for an entire year. And everybody was like, hey, we're picking somebody. We're gonna all watch 365 hours of their life. We would be bored out of our minds. But God has the patience to tell these like slow burn stories where you go through low hardship, small hardship, high degrees of hardship, and every one of you is building to a death scene. So you're building from like, how do I handle my hunger or my weariness, or pass my test, or treat my sister kindly, or be respectful to my parents, all the way up to how do I die well? Like that's where it's going for every one of you. And where you are in your story, like where you are in your story and what you have let to, yet to learn is huge. Like that's the important stuff. Yeah, and, and occasionally this, this podcast can either make you very depressed or very excited. For example, there's a helicopter flying over with somebody in a medical emergency right now. That's a life flight That's right like, there. that's somebody having themselves a day. Yeah. Being helicoptered to Spokane right now. 
And you guys are sitting here in the dark and some of you are like, I'm bored out of my mind. When are they going to stop? And that's, and for you, never. Um, <laughs> the answer is That's never. your level of hardship. Yeah. And a bunch of you are like, man, my friend from last year called, went to the other week. That's my hardship. <laughs> or this girl's being rude to me. Or, I or she totally come. knows I like him and she talked to him anyway. <laughs> because we all know that you're incredibly intelligent. Yeah. And so, and emotionally sophisticated. So <laughs> that's where we are right now and the level of difficulty, but every single one of you is getting purified all the way to the point of resurrection. That's where we're trying to go. And a quote that's so good is one that Nate's dad says all the time. God takes you where you are, not where you should have been. And that's always a great reminder of, hey, you could be the Jeroboam who, instead of ending his life in a giant battle where 500,000 of his men died, um, or I should say ending his, his career as a king, uh, you could be the one who repents and flips that around. Um, but I don't know. We have a much smaller task in front of us. Yeah. And I, I would say to all of, all of you in this moment in time, I've seen a really weird apathy settle in on, on people your age where the world... Uh, let's be honest, kind of sucks. It has been a rough It's just kind of sucks a little years. bit. <laughs> it's like, boy, that COVID thing kind of sucked. And yay, America. You know, like, it's just, we're, we're losing our vim and our vigor a little bit. You know, people are... We have a president who... And this, this is not necessarily bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we, yeah. We, we've got elder abuse in the White House. Yeah. Elder, elder abuse and, uh, and cocaine in the White House. But let's be honest, we've had a lot of cocaine in the White House before. That There's been a lot new. of coke in the White House. That's why they call it the White House, actually. Hey. The, um, so we, we look at where we are, and one of the things that's lost is the shine of a lot of institutions, a lot of like false gods, where, where people are chasing different dreams. And not long ago, if, if I was you know, we'd say five years ago, 10 years ago, I was talking to a group of people your age, everybody would have aggressive goals. Like aggressive goals. And they could be stupid, but they would be aggressive. And now it's like, eh, what do you want to do? Eh, it's going to kind of be around. I'm going to probably have some kids someday. I'm going to eat a lot of bread. Um, <laughs> I could see myself having chickens at some point or not. You know, like there's just like, whoa, not a ton of it's ambition. It's not quite millionaire by the time you're 21. Hoping to find <laughs> a friend for the end of the world, basically. is like, it's all, all the shine is, is crumbling. And the fact that the shine is crumbling is not terrible. But what it means for a lot of you, if you create this vacuum of desire, because you're not going to go chase all these false things, you, nobody's really super impressed with the Ivy League right now. Nobody's really super impressed with uh, NCAA sports right now. Nobody's blown away by the stuff that used to be really impressive. The stock market. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's, things are just manipulated and controlled and there's conspiracy and suddenly conspiracy theories are, seem to be real and there's whistleblowers talking about aliens and how the Pentagon is hiding alien spacecraft and that stays on the... I don't know that it made the top fold of the New York Times. 
It's like Pentagon whistleblower admits they've been hiding alien spacecraft. Everyone's like, Meh. and it's like below the fold. People talked about it for 18 hours, maybe may not have trended on Twitter. Yeah, you know, it's on just Joe Rogan. So probably Twitter. Yeah, it just Twitter. things are things are bizarre right now and they whistle past you and your nerve endings are deadened to scandal. Your nerve endings are deadened to corruption. You're no longer, you're no longer assuming that the justice system is just. You're no longer assuming anything about the mechanisms and the infrastructure of the world in which you live, which can mean that you start to aim really, really low for yourself. And one of the things that you all right now at your age have to think about is what kind of character do you want to be for real for anything? There's a comedian you probably heard of. A lot of you've heard of Nate Bargatze. Uh, who talks about if he had a time machine, went back to the 20s, he would have no advantage, basically, that no, nobody would believe him, A, and he wouldn't be able to like make a bunch of money or he'd probably wade tables, is what he said. It's like, it's just <laughs> because he would, he would say really incredible things like, so we'll have phones, we'll have this block, you can say things into it and it'll throw over great distances and people will say, how does it work? And they'll be like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. There's satellites. What are those? Ah. You know, it's like just, I, I don't know. Um, and his, his punchline was he thinks that he wouldn't even be able to prove he was from the future because people would ask him who the next president's going to be. And he'd be like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. But the, the point is in tumultuous times, the bar for you all as characters is so much higher, so much higher than it was in not long ago when things were just peaceful and placid. Like the things that you all will have to be able to navigate and overcome, joyfully overcome, the things you will have to be equipped to conquer in your own lives, in your own communities, back where you live, it's getting crazier. It's not calming down. And so it'd be really easy to say, it's getting stupid now. I guess I don't have to learn stuff. It, you know, I, I'm just gonna, you know, for you girls, you're like, hopefully some dude will like me. And you know, I, I see myself saying yes. And somebody's like, to whom? And you're like, just a yes. <laughs> um, you know, just have, have some ambition. And equip yourself for literally almost everything. You guys need to be some of the most versatile characters ever. Also say on the flip side, as you watch the entire quality of the workforce disintegrate as well, mm -hmm. when you guys demonstrate that sort of ability and potential, you are going to stand out like, I mean, there's plenty of metaphors we can use. You'll, you'll, you'll be the diamond in the dump heap very quickly, right? Uh, as someone who's looking for people to hire, it's not hard to compare the workforce in general with an NSA kid who knows what they're doing and have those comparisons and think, wow, that's awesome. I know I can help this kid succeed. Um, so on the other side, yeah, you gotta be really versatile and try for it, but God rewards that effort um, yeah. in, in, a, in a remarkably faithful way, almost as if he was watching your life every hour for the past 15 years. Yeah, and we're at, we're at a place where we don't really know what's coming and nobody could have predicted the recent past. Then I would, I would postulate that this, these are sort of the early warnings. Like this is like the beginning of the storm, not the end of the storm, we're not through it. 
like a wild shutdown, tyrannical shutdowns, people being arrested because they're trying to like go to worship services. That kind of thing just happened. And uh, it's, it's not difficult to see that it's going in a weirder place and a darker place and a, and a much heavier place than that. And if we're going back to story and the fantasy, it occurred to me that if we removed our attention span issue again, we like create a time lapse of the last hundred years or so, a little more than, and just stuck with the interesting, interesting bits. If I pitched you a fantasy world for a story in which a hundred years ago, all of the artists lost their minds and no one could paint anymore. Every time they picked up a brush, all that came out was chaos. And it was like that for a century. It's like, what would, in a fantasy story, what would you expect is coming? If you have this big, stable, wealthy empire in a fantasy world and the artists all go crazy, they can't sculpt things, they can't paint things. Every single thing they touch looks like death and chaos. What's coming, guys? Anybody been warned? Like, do we see any foreshadowing? And then here we are. And you look back at like, okay, what died first in the Western world? It's like art. Art died first. And like, and they've been painting crazy for a long time. Like they even just, called it fin de cycle, right? Yeah. The, the, you know, the end of the cycle was what they're calling, right? Fini? The turn of the 1900s. They're <laughs> yeah. like, it's over. And it's, they, they thought something good was coming, but. Uh, yeah, they're going to build something out of the ashes, but then it just keeps on sliding and we live here we had that hundred year warning and nobody paid any attention to it like we just kind of lived our lives and now and now here we are we are in a bizarre moment and it's also the kind of moment that i think that could be envied in you from a lot of other people that you're living at one of those moments of a great turning and a great change and just know that it's not a blast when you're in it but the challenge of thriving in it the challenge of rising up in it is the challenge that God's chosen for you all. So do not settle into apathy. Realize that what you're facing is gonna be more similar, like a lot more similar to what the generations faced here in 1939, 1940, uh, than it is similar to what generations faced in 1985. It's like, it's gonna be wild. It's gonna be really, really wild. And that shouldn't make you bunker down. It should make you realize Part of that countdown, like the clock you've got is, well, there's a clock to prepare. There's a clock, a clock to get equipped, a clock to get sharp, to get intelligent, to get wise. Women, you shouldn't want to say, I just, I just want to be a mom. You should want to be the matriarch of a terrible tribe. Be like, my, my people are going to give the world fits. I want my grandchildren to be terrifying to unbelievers. Like, I want to be that kind of matriarch. Guys, if you're just like, I, I think I like bridges. <laughs> like, okay, that's fine. Like pay the bills, but become broad. You better learn how to milk a cow also. <laughs> like study up on your cheese making uh, because it's, it's gonna be interesting. And that's, and I say this kind of like wildly and you can feel unreasonable, but I promise you it's not. And none of you are ready. So there's that. Don't worry, we aren't either. Yeah, we're still here. Do we have to do any questions from them? I think uh, we should. Yeah, yeah, we could do some Anybody questions. Anybody have any questions? Some of you sent in some questions, but I think we can do this. We can do some you hands out here. Go, glasses on the hat guy. Um, so what would you say to 
probably more like 19. Um, no, I, I think that's great. You don't have a lot of time. Better do it by the time you're 21. Um, the, it, well, I mean, to be honest, it make it easier as our currency deflates. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We may all be millionaires in a couple of years. Yeah, it's in a minute yeah, by, the end, by the end of this talk. Um, the, the key is, and I'm, I'm half joking, you know, and now I'm explaining a lot of this. Think about it like Thomas Jefferson. A bit of a dirtbag in plenty of ways, but genius, right? What did, what did he have to do for money? Anybody? I actually don't know. He was a farmer, right? He, had, he grew tobacco. Oh, Monticello. There we go. So he grew tobacco. He, had, he was the guy in charge. And yeah, there was like, okay, there were people ahead of him who helped build. He had a generational thing going, but not a, not a ton. Uh, he had to be really up on farming. He had to be able to run a farm. He also had to be ready with his linguistic skill to write the Declaration of Independence. He studied up on enough architecture that he designed buildings. University of Virginia, one of the most beautiful campuses in this country, he designed the key buildings as an architect, executing at a high level. So he, he had to be ready to design and pursue beauty. He had to be able to grow crops and he had to be able to face down tyrants. And that's kind of what I'm- In business, he's no slouch. He, yeah, bought, exactly. he literally bought America. The yeah. Louisiana Purchase. Literally, it was like, <laughs> I think I can take the French for all they're worth. And Napoleon um, was like, you got a deal. <laughs> and he's like, you know, we're good friends after this whole, you know, yeah. war against the British. I'll buy this useless dirt off you for cheap. Um, it was great. That's the Midwest, the yeah. useless dirt. <laughs> <laughs> all, the way, all, the, all the way through. The, the point is, I, that's more what I'm thinking. Like, it's more like you won't be able to just rely on the infrastructure of others. You'll have to be the kind of people who could write things yourself that will be a great work in, you know, in culture down the line. You have to be the kind of people who can design your own buildings. You have to be the kind of people who can uh, tend the ground, like all the way from the soil to big soaring abstract ideas of liberty. Like he's a, he's a perfect picture of the kind of guy I'm talking about. So versatility, breadth, copiousness, learn everything you can, learn as much as you can, like push yourself to learn quickly and broadly you know, as, as broadly as you can, because you really don't know what God has coming for you. So it's best to be a Swiss army knife. I mean, that's, that's the ideal situation. You want the little toothpick and the corkscrew. You want the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's going to what? Oh yeah, no, I'm not pitching a movie. I'm just saying that's the situation in which you live. Cool fact about that is- It's true. You're well, not gonna die till the time runs out. Like, that's, so yeah. you're invincible. And uh, then we have all these, all these, <laughs> and so somebody's like, hey, so I can run in front of a bus. And we're like, yeah, and we all know how much time's left as soon as you do it. But yeah, it's like, oh, it's like boom. But yeah, there are movie, movies have been made, but that's, it is actually a truth. We all have, you want to change it to sand if you want? Sure. Yes, ma'am. I think it's a terrible, terrible idea. Um, no, I think it's great, obviously. I love it. But just realize that there's different kinds and different points. And so I think there's, 
the difference between saying I wanna, I wanna bake bread and I wanna own Wonder Bread. I wanna write great stories that are fantastic for those who read them and I want my stories to be read by tens of millions of people. It's like, well, which thing's more important to you? The craft, making the stories excellent or how broadly it goes, you know, how successful it is in the marketplace. And so I, I think for anybody who wants to write, the focus has to be, it has to be on the quality of the craft also, it's really easy to say that and then let the I want to do it just stand for everything else. Yep. The doing of it. And a lot of people end up chasing fame. I know plenty of people who are sad after they published a book because it wasn't broadly received or critics didn't love it. Then there's a, a ton of people who get into a cycle of trying to present success, trying to pose like they're super successful uh, because they, they want the identity of author and they, that's what they want to be perceived as. And that matters to them way more than the baking of the bread. So somebody who's really loves baking bread and they're really, really good at it. It's like could end up with a lot of bakeries and a lot of followers and people could love it. Like fame and success could follow, but the baking of the bread was the thing is the thing they cared about, like becoming excellent. And then there's other people who are like, what's the fastest way to fame? I choose this way because I'm not athletic and I'm not good at music and I can't see myself in movies in front of the camera and I'm not going to be a model. So I'm going to write a book. <laughs> like this is, this is my path. Now people, the, the most sought after occupation for people your age, anybody know what it is? Influencer. Not very long ago, it was writer. And it was writer because writing was a path to fame that didn't require looks, athleticism, or talent. Um, <laughs> and so, and so that's, that's why people piled into it. So if you want to be a writer, great, fantastic. Start writing, get good at it, be excellent. Uh, become excellent in your work and you'll stand before kings. I and mean, that's, that's what God promises. So chase it by all means, but chase it because it's what God made you to do, not because you think you can get up the greasy pole of ambition uh, and become semi-famous that way. And incidentally, I'm not accusing you of that. I'm just saying that those things merge really, really quickly. They kind of, as soon as we write something, we want people to read what we wrote and we equate ourselves with it and it becomes this identity piece that can get really distracting. Anybody else? Yeah. What do I think of the Chosen series and am I judgy of Mormons? Is that the question? Okay, so what do I, what do I think of the fact that Mormons are doing it? It's important to, two, two things here. I have worked with those Mormons. Uh, I like them, but they're not making the series. So the nature of the industry is such that you have platforms and studios and, uh, and, and things like that. Netflix didn't make Hello Ninja any more than Angel made The Chosen. So Angel was kind of a, a bigger apparatus. Dallas Jenkins is the guy behind it. And Dallas Jenkins is an evangelical Baptist and a good dude. You know, so he was kind of the, the creative vision, the director there. He had a bunch of help. He, he partnered with Angel. And the question of that, uh, that Mormonism piece is a real question. Like how much influence is there and, and where does it lie? 
And I know that Dallas has navigated that carefully. Uh, and the Harmon brothers are from Idaho, so I'm, I'm for them. Uh, the, the Harmons are the, the guys behind Angel. They're very smart. They're very disruptive. They have built some very cool systems. They're doing some very good things uh, in the industry. And they are co-belligerents culturally. Uh, I think it would be a mistake to put them in charge of a gospel story. Uh, but they're not. They're in charge of the distribution and the, in the financial modeling, a lot, of, a lot of things like that. And they have, a, not to say they don't have a voice, but are they beating Christians? Like in some ways, yeah, they are. Uh, I wish Christians were as aggressive and as disruptive as the Harmon brothers have been, both first with VidAngel and then with Angel Studios. I wish we had more people like that in our camp. And I'm grateful that, we, that God's given us them. I'm grateful to have them in the culture wars uh, as allies. But the people behind the chosen, like creatively steering it, are Christians and are, are believers, like evangelical believers in, in the way you, you mean it. So I don't think that we're losing that way. Uh, we are losing in the business modeling to Angel. I don't think any Christians have been that sophisticated or that cutthroat as, as they have been. Uh, but I don't think they are the ones holding the steering wheel. As for what do I think of the show, uh, The Chosen, I have not seen it. And so I do not have uh, an informed opinion on that front. Anybody else? A couple more. Brian, what, question. What, is, what makes a good writer, Brian? What makes a good writer? Um, that is a good question. I think what makes a good writer is the ability to see things the way that they are. So writing we equate with seeing and then the ability to capture it. Um, so that's a craftsman-like definition of writing. When you meet, what, when I see someone describe something in a way that you say, yeah, that's how it is. That to me is, is what a good writer looks like. Um, I don't, I don't, I want, I, so yeah, I take a craftsman-like view of writing. The ability to capture and see how things really are, whether how they look, how they're made, or how they make us feel. So kind of truth, goodness, beauty on that answer. I would say, yep, kind of the same thing that makes a good writer is what makes a good termite. So what is a, what makes a really great termite? It's like a weird compulsions, um, <laughs> a, a desire to just build and build and build and, uh, and frequently in the dark, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's odd. Like it's there, there are creatures that God's made that are just truly nuts and termites are one group and there's over a couple thousand species of them and they do bizarre things and they have very complicated societies and what they're doing appears to have no like really rational explanation. Like, why are you doing this? Why did you make a 42 <laughs> foot tower of dung and spit? It's like, because <laughs> like, and, and some writer emerges from their darkness with this manuscript. It's like, it's like, why? Like you could have been playing Frisbee. You could have had friends. Like there's all these things you could have. And, and it's, it's really, really bizarre. So I, I think that uh, what Brian said is true in terms of the ability to see and say uh, wisdom, especially of expression of perception and expression. 
Uh, all that, the artistry of the words, sure, all the craft pieces, but you have to be kind of broken <laughs> as, a, as a person by normal standards. I have to be able to go on solo endurance hikes by myself with imaginary friends for nine months at a time. And you can't tell anybody about it while you're doing it because it's really boring. So it's kind of like telling people about your dream. <laughs> Just some of you are young enough, you probably still try to do that. Stop. <laughs> Un unless it's a, whoa, unless it's a doozy, you know, it's like, I had a dream that I was a serial killer and here's, <laughs> You know, like, okay. And, and then people are just worried about first. you. But, <laughs> but the, the fact is like when people are like, I had a dream that there was a pony in it. Just shut up. Um, <laughs> but the writers are like that. It's like, so I have this idea for a story and run with me here. And everybody's like, yeah, just exit. I've imagined something. I have a daydream. I'm going to tell you about instant apathy. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I don't care. Every, nobody cares. So a writer has to be able to sit still like a termite working in the dark, just working to build something that hopefully at some point somebody will like, and they're okay if nobody ever does. So Melville like chips away at Moby Dick and how many copies did that sell while he was alive? Oh man, I can't remember, but 50. Yeah. <laughs> almost none. You know, People it's said just, it, sorry, a book about whales. Yeah. Oh, don't worry. It gets really encyclopedic in the middle. <laughs> you know, it's, but there's a cannibal. It's like, I, I made up this cannibal and I made up this captain. He's got this thing about this whale. And it was like, just stop, stop telling me about it. But then when you actually have created the book and it works and it hits people, it's great. It's really, really cool. But it requires a kind of dysfunction in your endurance and your like ability to, like sit there and seriously entertain your daydreams until hopefully they've made you money. <laughs> so I did, uh, the outlaws of time series is based on a nightmare, a real nightmare I had in which my arms were destroyed and somebody grafted rattlesnakes into my arms. And it was, a, whoa, you see it was he a, is broken. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty terrifying. And I, I woke up surprised that there were not rattlesnakes in my arms. It was a very vivid fever dream. I was not well. And so I was expecting, I could feel the rattles. You know, I actually woke up with like the, the sensation memory of the rattles buzzing on my shoulders and my hands kind of going weird directions. Uh, and I became conscious and realized I can sell this. <laughs> this one, <laughs> this one is weird enough that I can sell it. Like, I think I can make some money on this thing. Um, but yeah, you have to be a little bit broken in that way, at least socially. Yeah. Is the hundred cupboards based on a nightmare? Oh. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say a nightmare more of there are, there are happy dreams involved, but no, uh, 100 cupboards was, it's kind of, it was, a, it was inspired by a fight, an argument, a playful argument with my wife. Uh, but my my life informed it. So I got shoved in my grandparents' attic when I was a kid and was crawling around in the walls and there was these attic doors and it was cool. Um, not anywhere near as cool as one under cupboards, but it was cool. Um, so I just had that there, but it was late one night with a buddy and somebody used the phrase 100 little cupboards. And I said, that would be, that sounds like a good title for a book. 
And my wife leaned in from the kitchen and said, that sounds like a stupid book. <laughs> and I was like, no, it'll be great. And she's like, 100 places to put my plates. I mean, that sounds really dumb. <laughs> and I started pitching and it was like improv pitching the story in order to win the argument. And so I started pitching this kid and his parents were missing. And so he gets shipped to Kansas and he's moving to this weird house. They got the cousins and they show him the attic and the plaster falls off on him. It was just like, Did you guys hear fire. that pitch by the way? It was a pretty good pitch. So it's, and so I, I did this whole thing and I'm, I'm pitching all the little mismatched doors and the post office box with the light through it. That's getting mail from a different world. And, and she's like, fine, fine. Okay. It'll be cool. It'll be a cool story. And I was like, great. I was done. As far as I was concerned, it's like, okay, I won the argument. That's all that mattered. Uh, the next day I woke up, she was staring at me and she's like, so what happens next? I've been thinking about this kid like all night on these doors. And I was like, I don't know, there's nothing there. She's like, well, you should start today. Um, so I did. So that's how cupboards happened, um, which is less nightmarish and more not working in my personality. Yep. What are your thoughts on the wing feather saga? On what? Thoughts on the wing feather saga. Uh, what do you mean? In, in which ways? I've not, I've not watched the uh, show. So the, okay, people I hear it's good. Uh, I've not watched the show. I was a producer on the show originally. Uh, and then they, they didn't have much budget. So it was sort of afterwards, once I set them up with VidAngel, then it turned into like, hey, can we please just do this ourselves? I was like, yes, you do not have to have a Wilson name on there. It's okay. And it was like, we weren't saying that. It's like. Yes, you were. Um, you didn't have to. You didn't have to. You didn't have to. So we, we got that kicked off and started there. And I'm, I'm really glad that we did. Uh, Andrew's a good friend. Uh, yeah, so I, I like Andrew Peterson a lot. Uh, he's going to, well, I'm, I'm going to torch him in my next nonfiction, but it's going to be fun. It's going to be like a playful torching of, of Andrew. Just playful screams. Just a little bit. <laughs> just a, a flamethrower, but I'm going to be laughing. <laughs> and actually, I think he will be too. Um, that's actually just because he uh, announced my brain tumor before I did. Um, he sent it out to his newsletter. When uh, I he, say, yeah. He had it on the DL. And he, it's not like he just told people. He actually sent out an email blast announcing it and created one of the weirdest book tours of my life um, because my wife and I decided to keep my brain tumor a secret until I was done with my book tour because I didn't want to talk to everybody about it. And uh, I happened to confide in Andrew. We were at the same conference that we had made this decision. I was going to go on my book tour and then I was going to go straight into surgery right afterwards. And he sent out a newsletter. Uh, announcing it. A little trumpet. Yeah, and so <clears throat> as I arrived at the first stop of my book tour, everybody was weeping and strange women are hugging me and um, other, other people are really mad at me. Uh, moms are just unleashing on me for even being on book tour. Not being with my family right now is like, because I might not survive. And I was like, you know, but they still need to eat. So like, 
like if you feel this bad, you should buy some, buy some books. But I have like women mad at me, people hugging me, like whole schools where people are crying because somebody introduced me. I was like, he's basically dead. Um, and you know, it's, and then there's the Ashtown fans who are just like, mm, you're not allowed to die. Yeah, don't you and they, dare. And like, they're like genuinely mad at me for having a brain tumor. <laughs> Because it, it wrecks their fan experience. Um, <laughs> I, I dare say. Anyway, that's a long meandering thing about my relationship with Andrew. So Andrew, uh, the author of Wing Feather, hunted me down after reading Cupboards. And I met him. He was at a concert. And he was first trying to write Wing Feather. He was first getting started. And he's, he's, just, he's a good friend. So he's a good friend. Um, and he's got a strong fan base. Uh, and I'm happy to support him. Uh, I don't have like a book review of the series for you. Uh, and even if I was, even if I did, I'm too close to him to do it objectively. I, would, I wouldn't want to uh, walk through. I feel more comfortable criticizing C.S. Lewis because he's dead. Uh, and he also was very thick skinned and smarter than I am. Uh, and I don't want to hurt Andrew's feelings. So I just, you know, I just support it. I'm all for it. Rah, rah. Yeah. I didn't die. Ashtown fans. No. We answered that in last week's episode. Yeah. So we'll say, is the fourth book of Ashtown coming soon? It is not. Just make your peace with that. And then when it comes, you'll be thrilled. So is it dead? No, it's not dead. Is it going to happen? Yes, it's going to happen. Uh, how long is it going to take me to have it to a finished draft ready to publish in a single volume? It's going to take a minute. There's a lot of shrapnel flying around. So hopefully, I mean, I am more back in the saddle on Ashtown than I was. There's a whole lot of chaos uh, going there for a, a little while. Uh, but it's, yeah, it'll, it'll happen. I just have to find ways to partition my productive hours uh, more effectively. I don't have that many. I think okay. this has got to be our last one. Okay, last one. You pick. Yes, ma'am. Question we're all is, dysfunctional. <laughs> question is, Nate and his sisters are all termites. And, yes. And both of his parents, which makes sense because termites have termites. Yeah, they do. It's, <laughs> yeah, birds of a feather have, have more birds of a feather. Yeah. Um, the question is, why? You why, why am I and my sisters all authors? What flamethrower did they use to the give endurance, you the endurance? Yeah, to give you the endurance to finish books. I, it's a tough endurance to get. So I, I do think you just have to kind of be born for it a little bit. I, and it's not to say that people couldn't learn it, uh, but it's it's weird, and I don't think that my sisters have it. They're oh, they're more normal. Wow. Then um, I I mean that in the sweetest possible way. I just, if I think, can I envision myself someday writing an irrationally long novel? Yes. A novel that's maybe 300 pages longer than it should be. Yes, I can see that. I can, I can see myself not knowing that that was the case. 
I've done it already. So I've done that before. Uh, my, my sisters are a lot more practical and they both write, they're both gifted with words, both have written nonfiction and curriculum. And I think they would be too practical to write a really, really long, you know, endurance novel. I do think my younger sister will write a pretty fantastic short, uh, some pretty short, fantastic short fiction. And I don't mean short stories, I mean shorter volumes. So, so I think she has the endurance and she's a mom. She's got a ton of, you know, a ton of kids. I can just like go dark on my children, it's fine. <laughs> um, but it's, it's harder for a mom to do that. So she, I think she will write and she will do very cool stuff because she's got the vision for it and she's got the, the character insight and she's got the wordplay piece. But I think it will be, you know, 200 pages. It won't be 500 pages. Uh, as far as what our parents did to instill in us that endurance, I think a love of words, a love of story, a love of story read aloud, of wordplay, of the rhythms of words, the physicality of words, all of that I think was a huge, a huge factor. Uh, my older sister has the endurance to write uh, academic stuff and like dense artistic stuff, like more in concentrate. And I think she would be capable ability-wise of crafting a story like every single part of a novel. I just don't see her ever making the decision to think that 400 pages or 500 pages was worth it at all. And she wouldn't necessarily be wrong. It's usually not. So, you know, it's, it's kind of odd. I, I have to be able to buckle up and just say, hey, I'm hanging out with these imaginary friends for a long time. I hope other people like them because I just sold three books. I've got to do three years of my life with these, with these jokers. Um, so anyway, I think reading to us a lot gave us the love of it. But I do think both my sisters are a little more rational than I am when it comes to writing. Nice. And they don't listen to this, so we can say whatever we want about them. How many of you listen to What Have You? How many of you? Okay, there we go. There's a chunk of them. See, you can tell if you listen to What Have You, you'll know they never will mention this. We'll just never, Hero's not going to tell them. Um, <laughs> it's it's going to be perfect. So I could have been as rude as I wanted, but I was actually quite polite. Anyways, with that, great summary. Thank Are we you done? all. We're done. Sasf. Um, Stories are soul food. Thanks a lot for hanging out with us. Um, I don't know, what's, what's the single takeaway for these people? I mean, it's uh, be ready for the moment you're in, which is a moment that requires you to be capable. Yep, and real prepping is preparation of the human, not you know buying buckets of seed corn. Like prepare yourselves as characters. Have fun, thanks a bunch for being here. I'm here to tell you about a brand new kids show now streaming on Canon Plus. It's called Creature Kids, and it's a children's draw-along art show. What is a draw-along art show, you ask? It is a show that shows you step-by-step -step how to draw very cool creatures. So for example, on this one, you get to figure out how to draw caterpillars, lions, Great Danes, unicorns, Sasquatches, the Cranky Danky Dragon himself, and many other exciting things. My kids ages three to 10 are currently papering our entire house with drawings from Creature Kids, which features the effervescent Justin Hatcher. So check it out now. I'm going to include the trailer so you can watch that right after I stop talking, or if you're on audio, you can listen to it and imagine 
how fun and bright and colorful and summery the art is. Starting now. Welcome to Creature Kids. I'm Justin, and this is my new show, Creature Kids, where I draw the coolest creatures step by step, creating artwork that will cover your fridge. We'll cover it all, from rhinos, butterflies, and rattlesnakes, to chameleons, unicorns, and the mighty T-Rex. Ow! With guest appearances from Forrest Dickinson, illustrator of Hello Ninja, and Sir Battleot and his Cranky Danky Dragon as well as Jessica Lynn Evans, creator of Penguin Set Sail. Plus, you'll get to meet my friends, Cameron the Chameleon, Molly the Dog, and Fitzpatrick the Bearded Dragon. Watch it now on, where is this? YouTube or TikTok or? Oh, right, Canon Plus. Thanks so much for drawing with me today. How do you guys think we did? Let's see how Molly thinks we did. Molly, Molly, how'd we do? Did we do good? Oh.